We're speaking with best-selling author and former prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi about his latest work, Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, Mr. Bugliosi, and regarding this matter of, of the taping, there is one thing that just a lot of people are, are puzzled over. Uh, and I noticed in the book you report that David Phillips, the man at the embassy down there who was responsible for the tapes, told you they were destroyed. Yet uh, we know from recent testimony that uh, commissioners or Warren Commission counsels David Slauson and William Coleman said they listened to tapes of Oswald in Mexico City seven months after this alleged destruction. So my question is, how can one not conclude that David Phillips lied to you? Have you read everything that I've written about this? I can't honestly say I've read everything about it, no. Okay, well, uh, look into the end notes. Okay. And, um, uh, the end notes are very important. And Slauson uh, has said that uh, he thinks he may have listened to the tapes. He's not sure at all. This years and years and years ago. Uh, the House Select Committee had a fellow by the name of Lopez, who's a confirmed conspiracy theorist. And uh, he went down there to Mexico City, and, and he came up with a report called the Lopez Report. He testified for London, in London as a defense witness. And even the Lopez Report confirms what Phillips told me, that they kept those tapes for about two weeks and they destroyed them. And now we're talking about Lopez, who is a very, very confirmed conspiracy theorist who was employed by the House Select Committee. And his testimony was consistent with what the CIA has said, that they kept those tapes for about two weeks and then they destroyed them. All right. And let's address what many consider to be the weak link in the Warren, the Warren Commission report, the single bullet theory. It's been argued in the past that no bullet could produce seven wounds. I would like to, to note for your benefit and the listeners that we decided to test that some years ago. So here in the Sacramento area, we have a World War II rifle expert. I went out with him, and we set up a simulation and verified that 6.5-millimeter Carcano rounds can easily punch through muscle, break rib, break a plaster splint, impact high-density foam, and yet emerge almost perfect. But I would just say, in, you know, in summary, that uh, a military jacketed round was capable of what was alleged. Yeah, you, you've, ra you've raised two parts of the magic bullet, and they're both, uh, they're both important. You've raised the pristine bullet uh, aspect, the aspect of it. The conspiracy theorists have claimed, uh, how could it do all the damage it did and still be pristine? Well, pristine, I think, means in its original condition, perfect. And in their books, uh, they conveniently do not show uh, the entire bullet. Uh, well, they show the bullet looks like the entire bullet, but they don't show the base. And as you know, Doug, in my book, I show the base of the bullet. The base of the bullet was badly damaged, so this is not a pristine bullet. Its original weight, I think, was 161 grains. It's now down to 158.6. Uh, and as you point out, this was a fully metal-jacketed, military-type bullet designed to cause a lot of damage to whatever it hits without causing too much damage to itself. And uh, experts at the House Select Committee and the Warren Commission uh, came to the conclusion that that bullet could cause the damage it did without being any more deformed than it was. Now, the, there's another aspect of the magic bullet that may be even more uh, uh, famous. Uh, than this, and that's that uh, 
it made right and left turns in midair. And this shows, Doug, as I told the, the, the crowd last night, how outrageous uh, and audacious these conspiracy theorists are. They don't only lie when there's documentary evidence to refute it. They literally have the audacity to lie when they know there's photographic evidence film evidence showing that they're lying. They don't care. Why? Because 99 out of 100 people whom they're uh, targeting their information with don't know the truth, don't have the access to the film or the photos. In their sketches, which I show in Reclaiming History, they put Governor Connolly directly in front of President Kennedy in the sketch, and therefore they say a bullet passing from the right to the left through soft tissue in Kennedy's body after it exits the throat to hit Connolly, they say, it would have had to make a right turn in midair and then a left turn to want to hit Connolly. Um, if you start out with an erroneous premise, Doug, as you well know, uh, everything that follows makes a heck of a lot of sense. The only problem is that it's wrong. Connolly was not seated directly in front of Kennedy in the limousine. We know that. I have a photograph in the book. The Zapruder film shows it. He was seated to Kennedy's left front. He was seated in a jump seat a half a foot in. The orientation of Connolly's body vis-a-vis Kennedy's uh, was such that a bullet passing on a straight line through Kennedy's body would have had nowhere else to go but to hit Governor Connolly. Who's got the magic bullet here? If we're to believe the conspiracy theorists, once that magic bullet exited the front of the president's throat, if we're to believe them, apparently it vanished into thin air without a trace, uh, and yet millions of Americans believe uh, what conspiracy theorists want them to believe. They've wrapped that magic bullet around the throat of the Warren Commission and have convinced the majority of Americans that the Warren Commission has a magic bullet. But, Doug, there's only one group here that has a magic bullet, and that's the conspiracy theorists. That bullet, according to them, must have vanished in thin air. Well, I, let, let's talk a little bit about, about what, what the... The photographic evidence would suggest it's a mistake to try and obviously solve a case using a bit of of uh, a film. But I did have someone locally here that had a a really ex really good projection system and a really good copy of the film, and we spent some time looking at it and just seeing what you might learn. So I want to take a brief a detour into that if we could. Yeah. And, and review the fact that you know it's a matter of record that everyone who saw the Zapruder film for the Warren Commission concluded that JFK was injured before he reemerged from behind that sign, and that the governors then hit on screen a second later. And when I say everyone, uh, that would mean, you know, wound experts from the Army's Edgewood Arsenal, FBI agents, Secret Service agents, the governor's surgeons, uh, the president's pathologists, commission staffers. Everyone agrees that when he reemerges from the sign, he's clearly injured. Oh, yes, yes, right. But it, but it was felt that Connolly was then struck later. It was a subject of a Life magazine uh, article in 67, right. etc. Right, right. No one really thought... Uh, until maybe April of 64, that, that, that that's not what happened, until Arlen Specter deduced that based on the timing of the woundings being less than that to work the rifle bolt, they must have been hit by the same slug. Is, 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 that, is that fair? Yeah, I just want to add one thing. Read an end note on Arlen Specter. Arlen okay. Specter has taken full credit for the single bullet theory, and it's so obvious a two-year-old would know about it. And you'll see that Arlen Specter was just one of several that was responsible, but he's the one that took full credit for it. 
look under Arlen Specter in the Zapruder film section, and you're going to be shocked to learn that Arlen Specter has been leading people to believe for years that he's the author of the single bullet theory. He is not. But nevertheless, it was it was deduced based on the on a necessity that uh, that if you didn't think that happened, that there had to be two guns, and that right. was not uh, what people wanted. Right. You've concluded in your book that the, what people have come up with, with more recently as an explanation that there was a missed shot at Zapruder frame 160. But again, viewing this really high quality film, it appears that, and I think people can verify this by looking at it on the web, that uh, JFK is smiling and he's waving up to about frame 190. And there's many motions at the film that w- on the film would suggest that that might have been the first shot. Uh, the Secret Service agent turned his head at that moment. A little girl stops running. Zapruder starts jiggling the film. The testimony of Mr. Betzner and Mr. Willis, they all seem to converge on a first shot around 189. But you've placed the shot impact of the single bullet a second later or so when they're both behind the sign. This requires that the governor would have been injured as he reemerged. Nobody sees that. How do you resolve all this? The uh, oak tree, if you're up at the sixth floor window, uh, the oak tree obscures your view of Kennedy and Connolly up until around frame... 207. It's kind of hard to believe, uh, kind of hard to believe that Oswald would shoot through that oak tree when he knew within a split second later he's going to get a clear shot. Now, <laughs> from Zapruder's film, uh, from his vantage point, he stopped seeing Kennedy and Connolly at around 207, 208, but from uh, uh, Oswald's standpoint, he starts seeing them very clearly at around 207. To believe a shot around 190, 193, you'd have to believe that he's aiming to kill the President of the United States and he's got this thick oak tree in front of him, which does not make any sense. I've concluded that the shot was fired somewhere between 207, when he gets his first clear shot after the oak tree, and 222. Uh, Now, why do I say 222? Because uh, at 222... uh, Connolly is emerging from the uh, Stemmons Freeway sign, and the House Select Committee, you know, they had a staff, a tremendous staff of experts, uh, photographic experts, I think 22 of them. They came to the conclusion that there was a stiffening of his upper torso at frame 222, indicating that he'd been shot somewhere between 207 and 222, and then Kennedy at 225 is seen for the first time in this film, and it's obvious he's responding to an external um, stimulus, a severe external stimulus. So somewhere between 222 and 225, we have evidence on the Zapruder film that they're both responding to, a, to, a, to, to being hit by a bullet. When did that bullet hit them? I don't know. Uh, my guess is that it was somewhere around frame 210. You know, when a layperson hears 210 and 212, they say, Mr. Bagliosi, that's 12 frames. But, you know, what is that 12 frames? Well, that 12 frames is about what? About two-thirds of a second. Uh, Very, very brief. But we we don't know when when the second shot uh, hit. Uh, The first shot, seemingly around 160, because the Zapruder film had just turned on to Elm, and there's all types of witnesses said that's when they heard the first shot. We know when when the third shot, of course, was hit. Uh, 313, we, we can see the explosion to the president's head. Let's, let's talk about that. I, I absolutely agree with your contention that the motion that we see, that famous head snap back, is not proof of a shot from the front. Bullets don't move large objects in their flight path, except maybe in Hollywood movies. Tin can, yes. Human body, no. Well, m- 
more important than that, I do think that a projectile will push any object it hits in the same direction, at least instantaneously for a moment. It will push that object in the same direction that the projectile is traveling. And that head snap to the rear was seen for the first time uh, on the evening of, uh, I forget the, the date, uh, but it was in 1975. It was in the evening, Good Good Evening America. It was a show by um, uh, Geraldo Rivera. It was a national network ABC show. And millions upon millions saw the Zapruder film, a pirated Zapruder film for the very first time. And around the time of the headshot, they see this head snap to the rear, and it convinced millions of Americans, understandably so, that the shot had to come from the front because the, the head goes backwards, the law of physics. Uh, and in, in London, in London, Spence showed that segment of the Zapruder film five times. I didn't object. I could have, but I let him, let him have his fun. And he said it looked like uh, the president had been hit by a bat swung by Babe Ruth. And he said, Mr. Bugliosi uh, is trying to convince you folks that what you've seen with your very own eyes, you really did not see. And if I did not have an answer to that, Doug, in London, uh, the verdict almost assuredly would have been not guilty because that would have been a reasonable doubt of guilt. As you know, the, the Dallas jury did come back with a guilty verdict. Yeah. The answer, Doug, is very clear. Uh, you have to look at the individual frames, which I showed the jury in London on a screen. Uh, you cannot see this if you look at the film. In the film, all you see is a head snap to the rear. But if you look at the individual frames, you see a 312. And incidentally, I don't think there's any other book that's ever been published on the assassination that has 312 and 313 in it. You can see this in the Warren Commission volumes, but I don't know of any other book that has this except reclaiming history. At 312, the president head, president's head looks okay. Now, let me qualify. There may be another book out there. I can't remember any other book that has this. 312, the president's head looks fine. 313, one-eighteenth of a second later, there was 18.3 frames per second in the Zafruder film. And you see the president hit at frame 313. Well, you, you, uh, uh, you see the explosion to the head. And in what direction, Doug, is the president's head pushed at frame 313? It's not pushed backwards, which would indicate a shot from the grassy knoll, as opposed to a shot from Oswald, who's to the president's right rear. The head is pushed slightly forward, 2.3 inches, indicating what? A shot from the rear where Oswald was. So at the all-important moment of impact, you cannot see on the film. The all-important moment of impact, frames 312 to 313, the president's head is pushed slightly forward from the projectile hitting him in the back of the head. And then, of course, at frames 314 to 321, you see the, uh, the head snap to the rear, eight inches, uh, caused by a neuromuscular reaction. Uh, the doctors say that what that means is that uh, nerve damage to the president's brain caused his back muscles to tighten, which in turn caused his head to snap to the rear. I, I think the most important thing to talk about is conspiracy. What's her conspiracy in this case? 
if I can try to summarize billions and billions and billions of words down to a couple minutes, uh, mm-hmm. because that's what people are interested in uh, more than whether Oswald was guilty. Let me see if I can do that for you. Please. There's no uh, credible evidence, let's underline the word credible, no credible evidence that the CIA or mob or military-industrial complex or any of these groups were behind the assassination. All we have these buffs doing is making a naked speculation. They come up with no evidence at all. I told the jury in London, I said, three people can keep a secret. I said, but only if two are dead. And here we have now, close to 44 years later, not one word, not one syllable has leaked out. Not one. I'm not talking about some nut saying my father... Uh, shot and killed Kennedy from the grassy knoll when the father's in, in prison at the time. I'm talking about credible evidence. No credible evidence has leaked out in close to 44 years, and we know it's almost impossible to keep a secret. Number two, there's no evidence that Oswald had any association with any of these groups believed to be behind the assassination. And Harold Weisberg, one of the great assassination researchers who leaned towards the conspiracy theory, I think it was he who said... You know, the FBI uh, examined and checked out every breath this guy ever breathed from the moment he arrived back from the Soviet Union to the United States on June 13, 1962, to the day of the assassination. They conducted 25,000 interviews. They saw nothing, no connection that he had with any of these groups. Number three, assuming one of these groups wanted to kill the president, I reject it completely out of hand as being silly, the type of thing you see in a Robert Ludlum novel. Uh, but in the book, I don't reject it out of hand. I don't have that luxury. I go in for the first time ever in any of the books, great, great depth, knocking down all these theories. I'm just saying that, personally, uh, it, it's silly on its face. But let's assume that one of these groups said, like the military-industrial complex, uh, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff sitting around a table with the heads of major corporations, let's murder Kennedy. Let's assume they decided to kill Kennedy. Uh, Oswald would have been... Doug, one of the last people on the face of the earth whom they would have gone to. Why? Well, he was not an expert shot. He was a good shot, but not an expert shot. He had a $12 mail-order rifle, notoriously unreliable, extremely, extremely unstable. I mean, Marina said he'd only be happy uh, uh, on the moon. Here's a guy who defects to the Soviet Union pre-Gorbachev, mind you, even today, who in the world defects to the Soviet Union, one of the bleakest places on the face of the earth? Just And, and, and when they turn him down, when he wants to become a Soviet citizen, what does he do? Well, you know what he did, Doug. He tried to commit suicide, slashed his wrist. The very type of people that the KGB or the mob or the CIA would want to rely on to commit the biggest murder in American history. It's silly on its face. Now, let me give you the final final thought on this. Let's assume again for the sake of argument that one of these groups said, yeah, we want to kill Kennedy, and let's try to get Oswald to do it for us, and he goes along with it. Let's see if where that takes us makes any sense at all. After Oswald left the book depository building after shooting Kennedy, Doug, one of two things would have happened. Let me tell you the least likely thing first. The least likely thing is that there would have been a car waiting for him to help him escape down to Ecuador, Mexico, or wherever, certainly the conspirators would not want their hitman to be apprehended and interrogated by the authorities. That's the least likely thing that would happen. Doug, you know what I'm going to say. You're a very bright guy. The most likely thing that would have happened, and you already know what I'm going to say, 
if the CIA or mob, blah, 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 military-industrial complex, got Oswald to kill Kenny, Kennedy for them, you know, you have to know there would have been a car waiting for him to drive him to his death. You have to know that. And yet we know that he's out on the street with $13 in his pocket trying to flag down buses and cabs. That fact alone tells any sensible person there was no conspiracy behind Oswald. Even the uh, presidential motorcade that went right below the uh, uh, sixth floor window uh, where Oswald was, that wasn't even determined until November 18th 1963, four days before the assassination, does anyone actually believe that the CIA would uh, uh, conspire with Oswald to kill Kennedy within four days of the, Ken of the president coming into Dallas? It's pure moonshine. The final footnote to all of this, Doug, is I find it difficult to speak candidly about reclaiming history without sounding boastful, but the opposite is even worse. The alternative is even worse because people can say, well, then it's just another book on the assassination. But it's not just another book on the assassination. And I think you agree with me on that, Doug. The, the L.A. Times said, finally, someone has put all the pieces together. Reclaiming History is a book for the ages. This is a very special book. I put 21 years of my life into it. I cannot do any better than this book. We've been speaking with Vincent Bugliosi about his book, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It is surely the most comprehensive book ever written about the case. For more information, one can go to reclaiminghistory.com. And I think anyone interested in this case is going to want to have this book. I'd like to say, Vincent Bugliosi, thank you for speaking with us. It's been a great honor. Thanks so much, Doug. It was an honor being on the show. All righty. We're grateful that despite a fatiguing book tour, failing voice, and tight schedule, Mr. Bugliosi gave us over 45 minutes of interview time. We have the utmost respect for Vincent Bugliosi and hope that he can join us again sometime to talk about some of his other works, most especially The Betrayal of America. A person who speaks his mind, even when the tide of politics is running against him, is someone to be admired. And in the wake of election 2000, damned few figures set out to express outrage over the Supreme Court voting along party lines to appoint George W. Bush president. Mr. Bugliosi is quite correct to note that some of what has been said about the assassination has come from charlatans. This correspondent has argued with some of these folks who claim, for example, that conspirators have altered the Zapruder film. I'm here to tell you that disreputable is too kind a description for many of them. This is not the same, of course, as saying that all the critics are irresponsible conspiracy theorists. We will, in the weeks to come, allow several prominent Warren critics to make brief comments about today's talk. A special thanks goes out to Franz Kassing for setting us up with the good people at W.W. Norton & Company, Inc., who published Reclaiming History. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We received special assistance in the recording of today's show from KQED Studios in San Francisco. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>